Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. During the season of Advent, in anticipation of the celebration of Christmas, all the way to the conclusion of the festivities with the observance of the 12th day of Christmas, otherwise known as Epiphany, which we just celebrated this week, we reflected on the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Well, that brief journey now becomes extended as we purpose to remain directed by Luke's well-researched and detailed account of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our plan is to read and absorb every single verse written by Luke because our goal for this sermon series is to be reminded and perhaps even to rediscover the most important and influential person in all of human history who also happens to be our creator, the beginning and the end of all life as we know it. These days, a lot of people invoke the name of Jesus, claiming to speak for Christ. Millions profess to believe in Jesus and thus to be following Christ in how they live their lives and in how they interact with the world. But the question is, how much of what is being said, how much of what is being done or not done in the name of Jesus actually is faithful to who Christ is, to what Jesus was all about? Well, the only way to properly answer that question is to go back to the source, to encounter Jesus, not as we've remade him in our own image or heard him through devotionals and other writings, not according to our own preferences, politics, or values, but to encounter Jesus as he revealed himself to us, his character, his teaching, his priorities, as recorded in the Bible. Step by step, let us learn from the firsthand experiences of those who first followed Christ so that we can know Jesus rightly, so that we can know Jesus better than we know ourselves. Because the promise of the gospel is the more we know Jesus, the more we know ourselves. And the more we know ourselves, the more we will understand why Jesus is the only one we should be following, the only one to whom we should devote our lives. And the more we are devoted to Christ, the more we are following Jesus, the more we will not only talk about Jesus, we'll start to act like Jesus. And the more we look like Christ, the more people will come to know, the more people will come to believe, the more people will come to rely on and follow Jesus too. And in the end, isn't that the point? The point of together being the church, the body of Christ? So we begin today with a person whose vocational goal was not to advance his own brand and make a name for himself, but was instead driven to decrease in prominence so that Jesus might increase in visibility and singularity. A man whose sole aim in life was to get out of the way in order to prepare the way and point others to Jesus. Now, this special someone had the distinction of being related to Jesus, of being his cousin. And yet John, or as he came to be known, John the Baptist, John living out in the wilderness, dressing in little more than a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt, John subsisting on a regular diet of locusts and wild honey. John initially sounds like one of those strange, eccentric family members from which we try to distance ourselves. But Jesus had a different take on his cousin. By Jesus' own declaration, John the Baptist was the greatest man living at that time, and that's high praise coming from Christ. Therefore, we best listen carefully to what John has to say. And here it is 
from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priestess of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked ro roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're introduced to John against the backdrop of the times in which he lived. Luke, as a good historian, reminds us of the reality of the Roman occupation as he names seven ruling powers of the day. The Roman emperor Tiberius is identified along with many of the figures who will become key players, key players in Jesus' eventual arrest, trial, and execution. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, the three younger sons of Herod, who, being subordinate to Rome, rule over the remaining provinces of the splintered former Jewish nation. And then we also have the chief priests, Ananias and Caiaphas, presiders over the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem. Following centuries of Israel being divided up and dominated by the empires of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and now Rome, after many generations have passed in the deafening silence of heaven, hundreds of years after the final message of God given through the prophet Malachi, the word that someday one would be sent in the spirit and power of Elijah, now Luke asserts this promise has finally coming true in the arrival of John the Baptist. And the word of the Lord comes not from the political or religious establishment. The word of the Lord comes, as Jesus will later remark, not from someone dressed in fine clothes, sitting in an expensive palace. No, God's word comes after all these years outside the margins of worldly power beyond the fringe of civilized society, in a place where it is least expected and yet where the word of God has been found before, in the wilderness. Luke, in fact, reinforces how the word of the Lord coming to John out in the wilderness is a fulfillment of a promise formerly given through the prophet Isaiah. You see, in the story of God and God's people, the wilderness is more than the designation of a location. The wilderness is a place where the Lord resets things where the Lord forms and shapes his people. Think of Moses and the Exodus. 
Hence, John's message being delivered here in the desert is to be understood as a call to return to God, to come back to square one, to begin again, to begin anew, afresh in the relationship. And that this call sign is not all that strange, but in fact all too familiar, is evidenced by the throngs of people who journey out to the wilderness to hear John speak, as both the hopeful and the curious, as well as a few critics, come to listen to what he has to say, John's message isn't what normally draws a crowd, or at least leads to a crowd sticking around. Those who yearn for the peace of Jerusalem, those who yearn for the unification of their nation once again, don't hear a word from John about making Israel great again. They don't hear from John about someone else to blame, the powers that be for all their problems. No, those who come all the way out to hear John end up themselves receiving a harsh rebuke, being addressed by John as a brood of vipers and warned of becoming like trees that are cut down and thrown into the fire. Those who gather are told the problem is not out there, the problem is in here. All our troubles are not because of them, whoever we define them to be, all of our troubles are, our, are of our own making because of a shortcoming to which we all fall victim. And if we listen carefully to John and read between the lines, that universal shortcoming is living for ourselves at the expense of others, cultivating in defiance of God a self-serving existence that in benefiting no one but ourselves proves to be fruitless. John, in preparing the way for Jesus' arrival, is laying the groundwork for a similar theme and a caution that will be heard in Christ's teaching. All of our claims of our individual rights, all of our claims of our personal autonomy and freedom will not be affirmed when Jesus arrives on the scene. They will be challenged. They will be rebuked. The measure of a person's life, Jesus will tell us, Christ will both teach and himself show the measure of a person's life is in one's willingness to love and serve others, even to lay down their life for another. Those who are closest to the kingdom of God are not those who give from the riches and privileges they perceive they can spare. Those who are closest to the kingdom of God are those who are willing to give away and sell all they have been given for the sake of sparing another's life. John, in his desert sermon, even goes so far, did you notice? He goes so far as to address the religious objection. Those who claim immunity, those who assert an exception based upon their profession of faith. John rebukes a commonly held notion of salvation by genetic descent. Those who would presume to fall back on, well, we have Abraham as our father, therefore, <laughs> we're good, nothing else matters. One of the questions that comes up with John's appearance is what is he doing? And why is he doing it in terms of baptizing those who come out to hear him, the majority of them being Jews? You see, it's a head-scratcher because while ritual purification through water had precedent in Judaism, it was done as a regular, continuous act of cleansing that one performed before an act of worship. It was not a one-time action. However, it was a practice within Judaism for non-Jews, Gentiles, to undergo ritual purification in order to become part of the faith. In other words, if what John is doing out in the wilderness, his baptism, is connected to how proselytites, converts, became a part of the faith of Abraham, then John, not just with his words, but John, through his actions, is declaring to his audience of presumed religious insiders that they are, in fact, outsiders. No better than pagans, Gentiles. John is doubling down 
on his insistence that religion by birth, being born into the faith, even professing that faith as one's own, John is doubling down that that's not what matters. According to John, the only evidence of a living faith is the fruit, or lack thereof, witnessed through one's life. And again, John is just setting the stage here. For when Jesus comes on the scene, when Jesus comes on the scene, he will make the exact same rebuke and assertion. Now, these days, sadly, John has become something of a caricature. His preparatory sermon for the coming of Christ has been reduced to the cry of a single word, repent, and has been translated by the Christian community into the stereotypical image of a person holding up a sign or wearing a sandwich board with this word, repent, while standing on a street corner. And it's both an image and a form of witness that does not appropriately represent John or the gospel the one to whom John the Baptist points. Because while John's words are full of warning and the threat of judgment, he also extends God's invitation and offer of forgiveness. And this is what is sorely lacking in street corner evangelism today. Because rarely is there any mention of forgiveness on all our Christian signs and sandwich boards, save for perhaps being buried in some isolated scripture reference that one has to look up. And there rarely is ever any grace present in the countenance and demeanor of those who hold up and wear such signs as they glare or perhaps even shout at those to whom they are speaking. Instead of extending an invitation, instead of laying the joyous expectation of meeting Jesus, what is being communicated is an indictment of guilt and shame, of judgment and condemnation. But John's cries out in the wilderness, they're not some wild rant. They're not a wild rant, some religious guilt trip seeking to shame his listeners into obedience. No, the heart of his call for repentance is an invitation to grace, extended with an eye towards the fulfilled promise of forgiveness. This coming gift of forgiveness to be received through Christ must, however, be embraced via repentance. And repentance, it's a very churchy word. Repentance is more than a complete change of mind. Repentance is more than the declared intent of walking in a new direction, towards rather than away from God. Repentance is an ongoing realignment. Repentance is a daily orientation. It's turning away from being self-centered and turning towards being God-centered daily. Notice, however, that individual spiritual cleansing, getting right with God, is not the end of John's message either. For John, while baptism, this baptism of repentance, while baptism is a start, discipleship, following the way of the Lord, is the next step. And that there is a next step is evident as those gathered after being baptized ask John, well, what then should we do? And John's answer is telling, isn't it? Each of his answers are contextualized to the person asking, specifically to their role or function in society, be they tax collectors or soldiers, John admonishes them to do their job properly, without bending the rules and without abusing their authority. And yet, before a society back then that's much like today, where corruption, exploitation, and abuse are normative, assumed and passively accepted, the fruit to which John points is even more radical than simply doing one's job properly. Notice in verse 11, his general direction to the crowd in the faithful distribution of possessions, sharing with those in need, is not about giving others a handout. 
It's about lifting everyone to a position of social equality. And by implication, the rejection of corruption, manipulating the system for one's own gain, the refusal to abuse one's power, not using violence for one's own preservation, is not only a code of conduct for tax collectors and soldiers, we're all called out. We're all called out of our repentance, our regular reorientation to the Lord, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before our God. Notice how for John, systemic change is not a matter of electing the right leaders. It's not a matter of passing the proper laws. Cultural change, life change, is fostered, according to John, by the acts of individuals being changed by the grace of God. And no longer playing by the rules of a faceless bureaucratic system, a that's just the way it works mentality. But instead, witnessing to the dawn of an inbreaking kingdom and living the way God is remaking this world to be. John's sermon echoes the songs of his youth. Mary's Magnificat, to which he leaped for joy in utero, do you remember? His father Zachariah's Benedictus sung over him on the very day he was circumcised and named. John's message here as the preamble to the announcement of the kingdom's arrival by Jesus, John's message will stand in continuity with the sermon, the good news that Christ will preach both through his words and his life. And what is that good news? That good news is that we look to and worship a God of judgment and forgiveness. Now, our tendency is to jump straight to the Lord's forgiveness, but we can't appreciate the gift of that forgiveness, that grace. We can't appreciate as well the fruit that ought to be born of it if we don't take to heart the reality of God's judgment. Now, we often fear God's judgment, but God's judgment is a good thing. It's a good thing because it means God cares. It's a good thing because it means God intends. God is committed to righting the wrongs of this world, to remedying the sufferings of those left vulnerable, those who are made victims, those who are downtrodden. For those who have no coat, for those who have been cheated out of their wages, for those who have been beaten down by the powers that be, God's judgment is not something to be feared. It is the very reason for hope. Those who ought to fear God's judgment are those who continue to prioritize their own sense of power and privilege over the well-being of others. For as John makes clear, and again, Jesus will later reinforce, God's judgment is against those who practice and perpetuate injustice, who wrong the Lord by wronging their neighbor. Now, if we step back, nothing about this news should be all that surprising. John, and again later Jesus, are merely directing all of us to practice nothing more than what the law requires. Loving God through loving each other as God loves us. But the good news that John begins to introduce is the judgment we deserve for the law we fail to fulfill is not without the possibility of forgiveness. And the forgiveness that God offers to us comes not just with a pardon, a clean slate, but it also comes with the power of grace, the means to break free of our addiction to self, the means to break free and get the guidance and strength to be able to love and serve others like the Lord loves and serves us. And no one is beyond this gift of forgiveness, this opportunity for repentance, this transformation of one's life. Jesus will repeatedly demonstrate the validity of this universal invitation and promise by associating with tax collectors and sinners, going to their homes and eating with them, much to the shock and chagrin of the so-called pious and religious. In fact, Jesus will visit the home of one of the most notorious perceived outsiders, a person presumably beyond hope, 
Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector whose wealth is due to defrauding others. But as Zacchaeus responds to the call to repentance that John makes here and the invitation to salvation that Jesus extends, Zacchaeus will both find the inspiration and the strength to give half his possessions to the poor and to pay back anyone he has defrauded fourfold. After which Jesus will announce, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. It'll be just like John proclaims here, that even from hearts of stone, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. Even tax collectors and sinners like us are not without hope. We're not beyond the reach of the gospel. But let us be sure to hear and understand John carefully and clearly. The first step in following Jesus, the first step into the kingdom of God, is not belief. It is not confession. It is repentance. Don't misunderstand. Belief and confession matter. To confess belief is to acknowledge that there is a kingdom, the one and only true realm of all life, meaning, and purpose, and that none of us are the lords of it. Only Jesus is. To confess belief is to realize that all our so-called kingdoms are pretenders, and only Jesus can save us from ourselves. To confess belief in Jesus and God's one true kingdom is to recognize and acknowledge reality. But it's not necessarily to live within it. It's not necessarily about abiding in Christ. Repentance is the first and repeated step forward, not merely turning around and reorienting to our true north, but beginning and continuing to walk in the right direction, to follow the singular path laid out for us by Jesus. We dare not claim to possess God's great gospel of love, unless we've heard and answered God's call to repentance, God's great gospel of forgiveness. Without daily answering that call to repentance, we end up taking the love of God for granted, either exercising it cheaply, transactionally, inevitably convincing ourselves we're owed it, or getting stuck in that exhausting lie of trying to justify or earn it. Another way to say this is true love is about commitment. It's God's commitment to love us, which in turn inspires and empowers our commitment to love God. God only asks us to say yes to his proposal, to keep looking to, to keep listening, to keep following, to keep coming back to him, coming back to his love. But true love is more than a decision. True love is about a commitment, and commitment is about change. God does not change, but God commits to change us. We have to be willing to be committed to being changed to being transformed. Repentance is daily coming back to our first love and committing anew to be changed by that love, to follow that love and let that love, the love of God, the love that is God, to let that love have its way with us. Unrepentant people, unchanged people, operate out of fear rather than love. They seek to control, to manipulate, and use others for their own gain, for their own sense of security. Unrepentant people, unchanged people, fixate on their power and authority, their rights and their freedoms, versus relying on God's power and authority. Rather than sharing the freedom Christ gives and advocating the right of all persons to be loved as Jesus intends. The unrepentant, the unchanged, will attempt to invoke the judgment of Christ upon others, even as they presume to hoard the grace that Jesus gives. Unrepentant people, unchanged people, tend to view their relationships in terms of how can you be useful to me? What can you do for me? But the repentant, those set free by the forgiveness of Christ, those being changed by the grace of God, no longer view others in this manner, as Paul once wrote. Knowing who they are in Christ, 
secure in the promise of where Jesus is leading them, the repentant. Those being empowered and transformed by the love of God view their relationships differently, asking instead, how is God calling me to become useful to you? Where is the Lord calling me? What is the Lord calling me to do for you? John stands before us, beloved, preparing us once again to follow Jesus. John stands before us declaring the introduction to the gospel, to the good news that promises not only to change our lives, but to transform all creation. And this gospel to which John points and prepares the way, it stands in stark contrast to the gospel to which many of us are putting our hope. How can we tell the difference? Well, the fruit of John's gospel this good news that he begins to share, the fruit of John's gospel is ethical. It's highly practical and specific, and it's inclusive of others. Whereas the fruit of what many these days call the gospel is purely emotional and predominantly ethereal. It's privatized, it's spiritualized, and it's individualistic. And as we look around at churches that are a lot emptier these days, and more significantly as we look around at people who are walking away from their faith, it seems clear that one of the deaths we are experiencing due to this global pandemic and the rising societal polarization is the death of the spiritualized, privatized gospel. That gospel was on life support previously, but now it is clearly dying and it needs to die. It deserves to die because it is a false gospel. When the credibility of our words about Jesus fail to be matched by the authenticity of our lived witness for Christ, that's not good news. It's just the same old fake news people can get anywhere. The good news John introduces is the word become flesh, more than ideas or feelings of love, forgiveness, peace, grace, mercy, justice. We're talking about love incarnate, forgiveness embodied, peace extended with open arms, grace that you can taste and see at a table, and justice delivered not in theory in a courtroom, but in practice through the righteous intervention of those who stand up and speak up for the silenced and disenfranchised. This is the true fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the vine of abiding in Christ. This is the true fruit for which all the world deeply hungers. And while all these actions are not the seeds of our salvation, these good works are the fruit of our repentance, of singularly following Jesus with each and every step of our lives. For this gospel we proclaim isn't good news unless it is good news that we live and embody. Unless this news becomes more than good words. And like Jesus becomes tangible, physical, materially concrete in how we live together day by day. For the harvest of our true worship of the Lord is not revealed in how many Sunday services, praise concerts, Bible studies, and spiritual retreats we yield in a lifetime. No. The harvest of our true worship is revealed through the fruit we yield in how we live in respect and service to others, being particularly responsive to those in need. Let us then, by the grace of God and the leading of the Spirit, let us then live lives marked by humble repentance and characterized by grace. Let us forgive quickly and foster peace always. Let us love extravagantly, share generously, and serve with intentionality, together becoming the body that Christ designed us to be, together becoming the gospel we profess to believe and follow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks.
If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.